Good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 6. We're going to continue in our misunderstood, misquoted, misapplied passages of Scripture. So today we'll look at Proverbs 22, verse 6. It's really going to be about parenting, grandparenting, great-grandparenting, being a surrogate parent in the life of someone else. We're actually going to start by watching a couple quick videos. The first is by Luke and Carrie Budleski, and the second by Joanne Altman, Highland Attenders, who are just going to give us a few parenting tips. I'm Luke. This is my wife, Carrie. We have three kids, ages 18, 18, and 15. And uh, through that, we've come through a lot of different stages. And uh, some parenting advice that we have for you today is thinking about um, managing peace in the chaos, I guess. Um, For me, I break it down into three parts in the day. And in the morning, we try to get up early in the morning to have some quiet time before everybody gets up whether it was time just to read in the word or do some devotions or pray specifically for our kids before the day gets too crazy. And then midday, um, depending on how things were, um, to have a place to go to, even if it's just for a couple minutes, if there's craziness. For us, it was our bedroom. We had pictures on the walls of the kids when they were babies, and it just gave a perspective. Um, Maybe the situation wasn't as big as what um, you were dealing with and to be able to go out and finish strong for the rest of the day. And uh, at nighttime, uh, after the kids go to bed, um, to pray over them. And sometimes that's getting on uh, your knees at the bed and having your hand on their back and praying maybe something specifically for them or a situation that you were dealing with or maybe there's some frustration and something to, to put, it, uh, put it to bed. <laughs> and to move on to the next day. And with that perspective too, uh, we think of having mentoring parents, uh, to have maybe parents that have kids a few years older than yours and to hear stories. Um, Maybe maybe it's something that um, uh, makes you laugh or just to see the other side. Yes, that was very helpful. Um, Very helpful to have kids, especially and the same sex of your kids as well, just because the girls and boys are so different, at least in our experience. So, um, but also a few other things that we tried to focus on um, with our parenting is one, um, just owning your family time. You know, our kids didn't get to do everything they wanted to do. And we really stressed spending time together. And, um, you know, it just, so many things can, you know, want your time with your kids. And so, you know, you have to choose wisely and um, just don't give it up easily, I guess. Um, also, um, I would say just being your child's biggest advocate, supporting them in however, you know, they need you to support them in. Um, it's It changes, I think, through the various stages of life um, as they grow and, and what they need from you and and just knowing um, that you have their back, that they know that. Um, and finally, the biggest thing I think is prayer. Um, like Luke said, nothing has 
brought me to my knees more than praying for my kids. And, you know, reading his scripture, his promises, his truths, knowing that he loves them more than we do and um, that he has a plan for them. It's just, it gives you that encouragement, the um, motivation to get through those challenging times and really um, just keep pushing forward. But yeah, parenting hard, it's amazing. It's just, it's everything in between. And ultimately we're just so thankful that we have a God that is willing to stand by us and walk with us um, through it all. Well, you need to know that I'm still in training after all these years of being a parent and a grandparent, I'm learning a lot. But the three things God told me that he required of me is to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. So all these years I've been trying to learn what does that really mean? And some of the things I've learned is that he says, act justly. And that means it's something I need to demonstrate, which should come from my heart. So I've learned more and more how to respect my family as individuals and not compare them. And I try to be fair with them and I try to treat them as they would treat me. And so I try to do that by spending time with them and listening to them and just having fun and talking to them. But I hope that I listen more and talk less. And so I also work on trying to be trustworthy and confidential with things that they share with me that are appropriate and not pass on to other people. So those are some of the things that I've learned to do in acting justly so that they see what's coming from my heart and I really mean it. But then when God says, love mercy, I really looked at the word in front of mercy and he said, Joanne, love mercy. I thought, oh, what does it mean to love mercy? And it means do not treat them as they deserve. And I have learned more and more on how God gently treats me and he's gracious and compassionate towards me. And so I've learned not to get quite so excited when things happen that catch me off a of guard. And I learned to be a lot more forgiving. It's, it really has been a learning process of how God has forgiven me. And I'm not done learning yet, but I've even learned to ask them to forgive me. And so with that, I uh, often think of the prodigal son's father is that when he turned around, he noticed that his father was facing him and the father had his arms open and welcomed him back when he made mistakes and picked him up when he made mistakes and demonstrated the love of Christ. So then when God says, walk humbly with me, with my God, there's that word walk, which is a slow, steady process of one step at a time. And, and I hope to let my children know and grandchildren that I too am under the submission of God the Father. And so I'm learning, I'm changing, I'm learning to say I'm sorry when I do things that are not appropriate or that they respect. And I'm learning to say, please forgive me when I need to. And I'm being willing to change even at this age. And it's hard because it's just hard to change. But God has taught me to be more gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and desire that no one perish. And so as I keep finishing out these last years, I hope that my heart is demonstrated in my home, that my home is a refuge and not a battleground. Lots of good stuff there. The two things that I walk away with are these. I love that Luke and Carrie stressed praying. And prayer matters. Praying for our kids, praying with our kids. It just matters. And I love that Joanne stressed to walk humbly and with love. And it's my observation... I'm kind of old, so I can make these observations. It's my observation that a lot of younger parents do one of two things. They either don't parent, that's a really bad choice, or they over-parent. And I remember when my mother-in-law said to me, you need to lighten up. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. I went to seminary. And then I thought more about it, and I needed to lighten up. And so, younger parents, some of you need to lighten up. You need to give a little bit of space to allow kids to make some mistakes that while they're at home, you can pick them up. You don't want such a tight ship that when they leave the home, they go crazy and make all their mistakes. You want them to make mistakes now when you're there to help manage the mistakes. So it's a balance. 11 miles off the east coast of Scotland in the North Sea is the Bell Rock Lighthouse. I don't know if you know anything about the Bell Rock Lighthouse. It was built in 1811. Robert Stevenson and a team of 65 artists construction individuals built it. It's 115 feet tall. It can be seen 35 miles away. As I said, it's 11 miles off the coast because it's on this jut of rock that is underwater 20 hours of a day. It is only seen the jut of rock for four hours and yet the jut of rock is an acre and before this lighthouse was built, on average, six ships sunk every single year. And so this was necessary. Now understand how difficult it is. They had four hours every day to build it because the rest of the time it's underwater. And so for four hours, for four years, they built a foundation and it is the longest lasting foundation in salt water in world history. It has never had to be rebuilt. Some call it one of the seven architectural wonders of the world. But they only had four hours for four years. That's a lot like parenting. Optimal years of parenting is maybe 18. And if you're in the thick of it, especially if you have certain age kids and you don't know what sleep looks like, you're thinking this is never going to end. It will. 
And you'll get to be my age and you'll say, man, that went so quick. How is it possible that it went so quick? How is that possible? It was just like that. And so you want to seize the day. Carp diem, seize the day while those kids are at home. And for those of us who no longer have kids at home, we want to seize the day because our parenting doesn't end. Our grandparenting doesn't end. Our surrogate parenting, nurturing kids that are not ours by blood, that doesn't end. I'm going to argue this is the third most important thing you can do in your life. You can love God, you can love your spouse, and you can raise the next generation. One, two, three. This is the third most important thing that anyone in this room can do with our lives is impact the next generation to build a foundation that will last the storms like this lighthouse. Now, as a grandparent and as a parent, I no longer have kids living in town. That's hard. I've had to learn how to parent from afar. I've had to learn how to grandparent from afar. But I'm not giving up the roles. And so my kids are scattered, three in the south, one in Minneapolis. Our two grandkids are in the south, south of Atlanta. I'm not giving up my role. And so I kind of have this little thing in my mind that I am going to parent and grandparent a certain number of times each week. I'm just going to talk about my grandkids for a moment, then I'll talk about kids. So for my grandkids, I am going to FaceTime them three or four times every week. And it's going to be strategic. I have a date with Ray Ray and Ro later on today. Most important thing I do today, not you, sorry. It's the most important thing I do. And we're going to play a couple games. They have the same games that I do. We've only figured out a couple how to do over FaceTime, but we're going to play a couple games. I'm going to read two books. One is sacred, one is secular. Today we'll read a Curious George book, and then we'll read about a gal in the book of Acts called Dorcas, Tabitha. And then I'm going to pray with them. I always pray with them every time I talk to them. Those things I know are going to happen today. It's the most important thing I can do with my time is love God, love my spouse, and nurture the next generations. That's what we ought to be investing our lives in. And when we read in Scripture about how to invest, I think of Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. The reason this is in our miscited, misunderstood, misapplied texts is this is one of those texts that people take as a promise, and it's not a promise, it's a proverb. We've got to know the style of light writing, the genre in which we read. This comes second nature to us when it comes to English language. For instance, if you have a contract, you know that a lawyer, she or he, wrote it very carefully. The punctuation matters. The grammar matters. There's nuance in the words. You've got to read it carefully. It's a contract. 
You know if you're reading something that's comical, that it's lightheaded, it's lighthearted, it's not to be taken seriously. Our culture that cancels things doesn't understand humor very well. If you have a book that's a novel, you read it differently than if you have a scientific manual. That's true in scripture. For instance, 40% of the Bible is historical literature. It tells us what actually happened. It is inerrant without error because it tells us exactly what happened. But we then need to decide using epistolary literature, that written by Paul and Peter and John, those letters tell us do, don't, do, don't. We need to take those letters and apply it to historical literature. Everything in historical literature, we should not imitate. Some we should, some we shouldn't. For instance, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, are we then to eat forbidden fruit? No. The epistles say what God says do, you do. What God says don't, you don't. You just know that because that's how the literature works. Historical literature. David committed adultery. He committed murder. Are we to do that? No. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, the commentary in Leviticus 19, they tell us that murder and adultery are wrong. They're an affront to somebody made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. And so they're an affront to God himself. Historical literature is 40% of the Bible. How do we interpret it? We interpret it based on epistolary literature. That's a genre. That's two genres working together. Proverbs are general truths. They're maxims for living. They're not promises. They're proverbs. They generally are true 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%. But to make a proverb a promise is to abuse scripture. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. If that is a promise, we can evaluate every person's parenting skill in this room. If you have a wayward child, you are a lousy parent. If you have really obedient, God-honoring children, you're a godly parent. And that's not true. There are godly parents in this room that have wayward children. And there are really lousy parents, probably in the other room, <laughs> that have really godly children. And that's called grace. But what the proverb teaches is if we raise up a child according to biblical standards, we will increase the likelihood that that child will come to know and to love Jesus. They're going to put something up on Pro Presenter. Godly influence. Godly influence is not an absolute guarantee of godly imitation. But godly influence does increase the likelihood of godly imitation. That's how a proverb works. That's how Proverbs 22 Six works. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. I want to illustrate this with a couple proverbs. One outside the Bible and then one in the Bible. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. 
That's a proverb. What is it teaching? That if you eat your vegetables and fruits, you will be healthier than if you don't eat your vegetable and fruits. We're not talking about the green stuff. Lima beans, peas, spinach. That's from the fall in the garden. That stuff's just evil. <laughs> but if you eat the rest of your vegetables and the rest of your fruits, you will increase the likelihood of better health. Does that mean you will never go to the doctor? It doesn't mean that. It just means that you increase the likelihood that you'll have to go less than somebody who eats poorly. Are there exceptions? There are exceptions. And there are exceptions when it comes to Proverbs. They're general truths, general maxims. If we don't understand that, we abuse Scripture. We abuse Scripture. Let me read one from the Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What? Almost gives you whiplash, doesn't it? <laughs> don't answer the fool. Do answer the fool. If you answer the fool, you're going to be a fool. If you don't answer the fool, you're going to be a fool. What on earth is going on? I think Proverbs is teaching that there are at least two types of fools. There's one type of fool, and we've all known this individual. This is the individual that you can argue with, you can reason with, you can give evidence to, and they will not move. You know what the Bible says? Wipe the dust off your feet and go to another village. That's what the Bible says. This kind of fool cannot be taught. This is a fool in which you are wasting your time and they are wasting your time. But there's another kind of fool. The other kind of fool is the individual that will listen to reason, that will change. You might have to really work with them, but they can be transformed by the fact that they're open-minded to change. And so when I think of the two kind of fools, I think two things. First, sometimes in my office, I will counsel fools that can be changed. That is a great use of my time. Sometimes, occasionally, I get someone in my office that is checking the box for a spouse. They are there to get themselves out of trouble. And they are a fool that are wasting their time and my time because it doesn't matter who says what to them, they're not going to change. They're just checking a box. And then I want to ask myself this question. Which kind of fool am I? Because we're all foolish in certain areas. Am I a fool that actually thinks I'm so smart and so wise and so educated that I can't learn something? What a fool. Or am I a fool that recognizes that I know a very small amount of truth? And there is a lot of corporate wisdom in the kingdom of God. And lots of people can build into my life and share wisdom and help me to take the next step in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Which kind of fool, am, which kind of fool are you? Am I? Are we? Proverbs tells us that 
we're going to come into contact with these kind of fools. Maybe 50% of each. And so Proverbs aren't looking at 100% guarantees. They're giving us wisdom for the circumstances that we come in contact with. And 50% of the fools can be bought and changed and transformed. 50% of the fools cannot. Again, that on pro presenter, godly influence is not an absolute guarantee of godly imitation. But godly influence does increase the likelihood of godly imitation. That's what train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. What does the word train mean? It's actually a Hebrew word you know. You just don't know you know it. It's hanak. You say that didn't help at all. <laughs> Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from hanak. What is Hanukkah? It's in the month of kiss love. That's mostly December. It is not the Jewish Christmas. It doesn't mean that at all. It actually refers to the Festival of Lights, an eight-day festival, but it has a great historical context. The second temple, we've had two, we're waiting for the third. The second temple was built in 586 in BC and destroyed in 70 AD. But in the second and first century BC, there was a Syrian Greek empire called the Seleucids. They were bad, very bad, and they overtook a lot of areas, including Israel and the Temple Mount. And there was one king in particular that was evil. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was the bad of the bad, really an evil individual. And he desecrated God's temple by throwing human and pig bones into the Holy of Holies. And God raised up the Maccabeans, Judas Maccabeus and Matthias, and they led a revolt. And from 165 to 160 BC, they drove the Seleucid Empire out and they rededicated the temple. That's what Hanukkah celebrates. It's the dedication. Train means to dedicate. Dedicate yourself to raising up the next generation. And when you do so, you will increase the odds that that next generation will walk with Jesus. Is it a promise? It is not. It is increasing the likelihood that our children, our grandchildren, our surrogate children will walk with Jesus if we dedicate ourselves to the task of raising up the next generation. I'm going to offer six suggestions. None of them are profound, but I'm going to make some extended comments on all six. I got to fill my time somehow. First, read the Bible to the next generation. Read the Bible and read it age appropriate and don't stop reading the Bible. So today I'll read about Tabitha or Dorcas to Ray, Ray, and Roe. Read the Bible. I'm trying to read three or four times a week to my grandkids. That's exactly the amount I tried to read to my kids when they were in the house. Never tried to do seven days a week. That's your super house. 
we're a little less than that. We aim for three or four times a week for all of their years. Did we do better at sometimes? We did. Did we do worse at sometimes? We did. But that's probably what we averaged. And we read age appropriate. When they were younger, we read little kid books and know the account because some kid books, they don't have the account right. I've never read Jonah right in a kid book, not once. It's never once happened. So know the biblical account, change the words with the pictures so that they hear the biblical account. Then when they get old enough to read the Bible, read passages that are more appropriate for their age. I'd read the gospels. For me, I think Luke and Mark are by far the most straightforward. John is hands down the most nuanced. That would be the last one I would read. I would read Luke and Mark first. The epistles, I definitely read James and 1 Corinthians because that's where we live. Those are the moral issues of the day. I'd also read Ephesians very early on rather than Romans. Ephesians is three chapters of doctrine that takes Paul 11 chapters in Romans. So I can do more in three than I can in 11. I'd read some historical literature. I'd read Acts, which talks about the bride of Christ, the church, both the good and the bad and the ugly, all of it. It's all in there. I'd read First and Second Samuel about David and some of the other kings and remind myself it's historical literature. So I need to know the goods and the bads, the yeses and the noes from the epistolary literature and incorporate them into my reading to the kids. I'd read Genesis. That's what generation 180 is doing. They're reading Genesis, studying Genesis, because it's a foundational book. I probably wouldn't read Song of Songs, and I didn't. I probably wouldn't read Leviticus, and I didn't. To my recollection, Betty Ann and I have read every book of the Bible now together. Now that the kids are gone, we have added some of the books we didn't read with them. So we added Leviticus and Isaiah. The only one I'm unsure of is I don't know if we've done Revelation the whole way through together. But we didn't do all of those books with our kids. I'm fine doing them now because they're older, but that wasn't my priority. I, I chose literature that was where they were at and age appropriate and some is more appropriate at some ages and less appropriate at others. Read the Bible to the next generation. Two, make church a priority. I've lived long enough now to see that every generation goes to church a little less than the generation before. Right now in America, the average attender who calls themselves a regular attender is in church one and a half times a month. That's the average. If that's true, the next generation will be in church 0.5, a half a time a month. We're modeling what the next generation is going to do. You got a cabin up north? Great. We live stream. Or there's a good Bible teaching church up north. Go to church. Don't get to the ski hill until after you've gone to church on Sunday. Find ways you got a traveling team, great. We live stream. Find a Bible teaching church. Do something. We model 
what's going to happen to the next generation. And they're going to take a step down from what we've modeled. We are inadvertently modeling that church is less a priority if it is less a priority for us. And they're going to take a step even further away from the church. We are always modeling for the next generation. Make church a priority. If you have at-home kids or you have influence on your grandkids, make Wednesday night a priority. Then your kids are hearing from the next generation. This week, Lars, who's over this way, uh, taught in Genesis. I can't even tell you how remarkable. It was the first time I think he's publicly taught. And man, if I had taught that way in seminary, they might have given me better grades. <laughs> it's really good. And you know how impacting somebody who is a young adult teaching is compared to somebody who's a little older? It's very impacting. It's very impacting. And you want God-centered people in your children's life. This isn't about legalism. If you don't want your kids to go to Gen 180 or One Way Club, fine. Find another tried and true method. But don't just throw it away. And if your kids say to you, I don't have any friends there, I'm not going, say, I get that. Oh, yeah. Do you have kids at school? Because if you don't, let's skip that too. And if you're sick, let's not go to the doctor because you don't want to go. And nobody likes the dentist. I hope you're not a dentist. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but nobody wants to go to the dentist. So why would we do this in one of the most important things that we could ever do? Allow excuses. Just say in our house, this is what we're going to do. Or if we have another model, great. But make sure you have a plan. Don't throw away a tried and true method for nothing. I've lived long enough, I've pastored long enough to tell you that you will increase the likelihood that your kids are still in church if they're in church or Sunday school in One Way Club and Gen 1 and 80 compared to those who are not. It's just a fact. You will increase the likelihood that they will walk with Jesus. And that's what the proverb is talking about. Increasing the odds for the next generation. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. Betty Ann, when the kids were on their way to school, she would always cite and pray over them, number six, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Did that guarantee that our kids were always safe? It did not. But I often wondered, and someday I'm going to know when I get to heaven, how many areas were our kids protected in because their mom said this prayer over her children before they went to school? And my kids know this for these verses. They sometimes have recreated art with these verses in their adult years. They know these verses because they had a mom that prayed them over each day. Fifth, pray with your kids. Doesn't matter how old they are. If you've never prayed over FaceTime or the phone the first dozen times, it will be really awkward. 
And then it'll become second nature. I am constantly praying with my kids and grandkids. And let me tell you, nobody, there is nobody who wants pastor daddy. Nobody. They just want me to be daddy. So they don't want this theologically accurate prayer that's got long words, 60 seconds, that suffices, maybe 30. But you constantly pray with your kids when they have an appointment, when a friend of theirs is sick, when they're going to be doing a certain activity, just, hey, can I pray for that? And then be done with it and move on. And it will become second nature and they'll be expecting it. And finally, wise parents monitor. They monitor the FaceTime, the electronic time, what people are looking at their phones and on radio and TV. They monitor that. I know teens that you don't want to hear that, but wise parents, godly parents, smart parents are going to monitor. You know how many adults get in trouble with electronic things? A lot. And we're expecting kids not to get in trouble with it. We ought to monitor it. I remember I was with a a group of uh, teens and uh, was asking them about uh, cell phones. And uh, the first one kind of looked down and said, I'm the only kid in my school that doesn't have a phone. And then the next kid looked at the ground and said, I'm the only kid in my school that doesn't have a phone. And there were nine of them, and seven of them were the only kid in their school that didn't have a phone. (laughs) And it's a miracle because my kids were the only kids in their school that didn't have a phone either. I'm not saying if you have allowed your kid to have a phone, that's wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that. But know what your kids are listening to, what they're watching, what they're doing. Adults are getting in trouble with electronics, with the internet. Why would we assume our kids would not if we're not guiding them in this area? And young people, it is an act of love because you are not going to say, thank you, mom. It is an act of love that mom and dad are looking at what you're doing. And someday if you get married and you have kids, you are going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that is an act of love by your parents. And in fact, it is. Let's look at one more aspect of the text. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. I think sometimes we evaluate a little bit too early. A 14-year-old is not going to have the spiritual maturity of a 34-year-old. It's just a fact. We evaluate a little bit too early. At this stage in my life, I've had the privilege of mentoring dozens and dozens of pastors. It's not because I'm godly. It's because I'm seasoned. And I'm going to tell you about three of them. You will not know who they are. None of them attend this church. None of them live in this area. So you don't know them. So it doesn't matter that I tell you their stories. The first pastor couple came to me and with tears they said our our daughter has sexual dysphoria she doesn't know what gender she's in the second pastor came to me and first talked to me over the phone and then came in person and just sobbing 
He said, my son hates church. He's told everyone who will listen that the last day he's at home will be the last day he will ever step foot in a church. The third couple came to me and said, due to the rebellion of our daughter and our boyfriend, we're grandparents. Our daughter's expecting. And you can imagine that this is not only very heavy in their hearts for their children, but now they're wondering what everyone in the room is wondering. Are they qualified? Should they step down? Should they end their career? And I could have taken them right to 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, or 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, or Titus 1, 5 to 9. They already knew those texts. But I'm going to read one of them to us anyway. I could have read Titus 1, 5 to 7. This is why I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. I could have read that to him. And I could have read the text only as pejorative punishment, discipline. But I read the text in a little bit different way. I think there's a part of that, but I think there's a big part that says, should a man or a woman in a leadership position remain in that leadership position if they're devoting too much time to their work in the church and neglecting their family? So instead of reading that, I did some research on all three of them. Were they neglecting their family? In fact, they were all outstanding parents. They actually had other kids that made that evident. They had other leaders in the church that testified to the fact that they were really good parents, all three of them. They weren't neglecting their family, and if I encouraged them to leave the job, they would have taken the same number of hours into a secular job. It would have changed nothing. They weren't hurting the testimony of the churches. People knew that they were good parents. And so in all three cases, I said, stay in the position you're in and let's pray together. Now, maybe you think that's the wrong answer. That's okay. But that's the answer I gave all three. Two of the three have rectified themselves already. And they could have ended their careers and damaged their churches for a six-month stent of rebellion. The third, I'm confident, is going to rectify itself as well. Maybe I'm wrong. We judge too early. Train up a child in the way he should grow. When he grows old, he will not depart. I have two final things I'm hoping to say this morning. One is to you kids. You would, young adults, teenagers, whatever. And that is, if you want to be wise in life, if you really want to be wise in life, you're going to listen to parents and grandparents. You're going to listen to godly individuals that God brings into your life. 
That's the way to be wise. Let me read Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Real wisdom comes when we listen to those who are further along the path than we are and who are walking with Jesus. And when you have those in your life, parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, one-way club, generation 180 teachers, model yourself after them and listen wisely. And for those of us who have children and grandchildren or surrogate children, the third most important thing we can do with our life is raise up the next generation. Love God beyond anything. Love your spouse and then raise up the next generation. Let me read from Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 8. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and you shall be as frontlets between your eyes. When do we talk about the Lord? When we lie down, when we sit up, when we walk. When we're in the house, when we're outside the house. That's what the text says. It's really the third most important thing that we can do. We love God and honor him with our lives. We love our spouse if we're married. And then we invest in the next generation. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help us to truly invest in the next generation. To love you preeminently if we're married, to love our spouse. And then to look for children, grandchildren, surrogate children, that we can model Christ, tell others about Christ, and let them grow to love you. May the next generations that we are in contact with know about your son, believe in your son, and live for your son, and help us to play a major role in this next number of generations. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.